Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship show. Well, last week on Thursday, we got that much weaker than expected ISM manufacturing number, which didn't get a lot of attention because it came out a day before the jobs numbers. And so the jobs numbers was casting a pretty big shadow on all the economic data. But the number came in very weak. As I pointed out, it was at 49.4, which was contraction mode anything below 50 in the ism numbers would be indicative of a contraction of a recession and we got a very weak number for manufacturing but of course nobody cares too much about manufacturing because of such a small part of the u.s economy which in and of itself is a major problem the fact that it is such a small part of the economy should be very concerning. But people dismiss it as if well you know it's just a small part of the economy so who cares that's the point Manufacturing shouldn't be a small part of the economy. It needs to be a much larger part. And the fact that it is so small is a very big problem. And of course, you know, all the service sector, which is much larger, without manufacturing, really, you can't have a service sector. The way the U.S. gets away with it is we just import what everybody else manufactures and we run enormous deficits, which is an unsustainable model. I've talked about that many times. It's a great gravy train while the ride lasts. But when the rest of the world figures out that we can never pay for any of the products that we're buying, then the gravy train comes to an end. And uh, now we're out of luck because now we can't survive anymore. We can't have our service sector economy because the manufacturing part of it uh, will collapse. And that you know, is a function of imports. And if we can't import, then you know, look at all the jobs in the service sector. But without the goods that underlie the services, the service sector jobs go away. So people fail to recognize that. Yes, the trade deficit is is big. In the short run, it represents a, a support. It's an artificially high standard of living. But in the long run, it's very problematic because it's unsustainable because our creditors will not let us get away with this forever because they're getting the short end of the stick. They do the work. 
and we reap the rewards, they pretend that at one point in the future, we're going to pay them back for all the money they loaned us to buy all their stuff. But they're just deluding themselves because we have no ability uh, or intention to ever repay these debts. We just want to keep running them up bigger and bigger and bigger. And our mentality here is that we never have to pay the money back. We Trade deficits are not a problem because we can run them in perpetuity, and it doesn't matter how big they get because we never actually have to repay. Well, that is the problem because our creditors are operating under the delusion that we're going to pay. Now, why? I don't know, because we actually tell them that we have no intention of paying. But at this point, no one seems to care, but no one cares until we do. But I want to get to this uh, ISM non-manufacturing number. This represents the service sector of the economy. And that came out yesterday. And of course, that's what everybody really pays attention to, more so than the manufacturing, uh, because, again, it's a much smaller part of the economy, unfortunately, so people think it's no big deal. The service sector, of course, that's the big enchilada, and that number came out yesterday, and they were looking for 55, which is not a great number, but, you know, it's okay. Uh, The prior month, we got 55.5, which was better than we had been expecting, and so that's one of the reasons that you had... The, the confidence that, hey, maybe the Fed's going to hike rates because we did get a little bounce in some of the data, not all the data. Remember, it was kind of a mixed bag, but we did get some positive data points uh, in July. And one of them was the ISM non-manufacturing. And they were looking for another number about the same as July. July was 55.5 and they were looking for 55 even. So not quite as good as July, but but close. Instead, the number came in at 51.4, way below what the forecast was. In fact, it's the lowest number in better than six years. And if you look beneath the surface at all of the various components of new orders and uh, backlog and hiring, horrible numbers, terrible, terrible numbers, uh, consistent with recession, just a horrible report. Complete opposite of what everybody was looking for. And when you combine this to the 49.4 we got for manufacturing, the 51.4 we got for uh, non-manufacturing, that is a very bleak picture. And the fact that we're at six-year-plus lows in the service sector does not bode well for the future. The trajectory is down. So how much longer is it going to be before the ISM non-manufacturing breaches the 50 mark? I don't think very long. I mean, we're certainly on that trajectory. And so, you know, it's just when they start talking about these rate hikes. I mean, everything before this number came out, it was all about, is the Fed going to go in September or December, right? I mean, foregone conclusion, right? Just like they've, that's something they've been talking about all the last couple of years. Will they go in March? Will they go in June? I don't know. Will they go in June? Will they go in September, right? This has been, is it going to be September Or is it going to be December? Remember, we had the same discussion a year ago when everybody thought the Fed was going to hike in September, and they didn't. They punted, and then eventually they they did hike in December. Will they do that again? Because obviously after this number has come out, given the other bad news from last week on not only manufacturing, but the weak August jobs report, and now this very, very weak service sector report, 
there's really no way the Fed is going to raise rates in September. But just when everybody was talking about, will it be September? Will it be December? Not will they hike. It was about which month they would choose to hike. Just when they think they're about to do it, now everything changes because she gets some bad news. In fact, what happens is we get some good news out, random good news, better than expected, and it gets everybody thinking, oh, okay, the Fed's going to raise rates. But then all of a sudden, you get a piece of bad news that comes out, and now they're not going to raise rates. Well, why do people believe that they're going to raise rates anyway just because we get an outlier of good economic news? Because we're always going to get bad news. And when the Fed says, well, we're data dependent, yeah, we want to raise rates, but it depends on the data, you know that there's going to be some bad data coming. So if they claim the rate hikes are based on the data, they're never going to deliver a rate hike because the data is always going to be bad enough uh, not to justify one. I mean, if the Fed really wanted to raise rates because rates are really low and they should be raised, the Fed should say, look, we're raising rates. Doesn't matter what the data is. We got to raise rates. They're at this emergency low level. They're only this low because we were supposedly in this big crisis. We don't believe we're still in a crisis. In fact, President Obama's out there talking about how we have the greatest economy in the world. We're the envy of the world. Everything is great. So we need to raise rates because the rates this low are not consistent with this great economy that we all seem to agree that we have. So the, the data dependency is just to cover never to do anything because they never have to because you're always going to get data like this that lets you off the hook. But the crazy part about it is nobody actually wants to acknowledge how bad this data is. They just don't raise rates. They never admit that, well, we're not raising rates because the data is awful. They just they just don't raise rates and that you got to figure it out for yourself. Now, when this number came out, the gold market took off. I mean, gold was still up a little bit before the number. Actually, no, I think it was down, down a few bucks. And then it rose to up about $10, but it continued to rise throughout the day. And it closed up better than 20 bucks. Gold got back above 1350 after having just tested about the $1,300 level just a few trading sessions ago. Silver actually had a big update. It was up better than 50 cents. It went back above the $20 uh, mark. And we had very, very strong move up in, in the gold stocks again that followed the strong move up that we had in gold stocks on Thursday and Friday. Uh, so big move on Tuesday. And the, the markets, again, were very surprised. And as soon as this numbers came out, all of a sudden the bets were, were changing, right? The odds for a September rate hike went way down, but not that much for December because people are just assuming, well, okay, they can't go in September because we got this bad news. But, of course, you know, by December, that gives us enough time to get some good news, and then uh, the Fed will be able to raise rates. Well, the reality is, by then, we'll probably get even more bad news that comes out between now and the end of the year. So the idea that, well, all this does is make December more likely just shows how people still want to just close their eyes to what really is going on here and that the Fed is not going to be raising rates. They're just talking about it politically. And in fact, we got this guy, John Williams, he made a speech yesterday, late last night, and people were wondering, okay, what is he going to say? Because we just got all this really bad economic news that came out. What is the Fed going to do? And basically, he ignored the news completely. Williams just said the U.S. economy is in good shape and headed in the right direction. That's what he said. This is after getting all that bad news. 
I mean, this is the right direction. We had the weakest non-manufacturing ISM in over six years. Huge collapse. Look at the trend in jobs. Look at what just happened with manufacturing ISM now below 50, indicating recession. How is this indicative that the U.S. is in good shape and headed in the right direction? You know, and then, of course, he said every meeting is live. Uh, you know, we could have a rate hike in September. We could have a rate hike in, in December. If the Fed is data dependent, why doesn't this data count? How can you ignore all this horrible data and still be out there and talk about how the U.S. economy is in such good shape and headed in the right direction? The only reason you would say that is if it's politics. It's all motivated by electing Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton only gets elected if the American people want to validate the Obama presidency based on the direction of the economy. So he can't come out and say, yeah, the data is awful. We're not going to raise rates. So they keep saying the data is good. Well, if the data is so good, why don't they raise rates? Well, because they can't. And they know the data is no good, but they can't say that. And, of course, you know, when I watch on CNBC, I was listening to uh, Rick Santelli. And, you know, he's on there and he's one of the only good guys on there on CNBC. But he's talking about how, you know, the Fed should have raised rates years ago. They blew their opportunity to do that. Now they waited too long and now they can't do it. So they're not. And I sent him an email and to which he agreed. But I guess he doesn't want to be that, you know, that straightforward (laughs) on CNBC. But I said, Rick, if they had raised rates a couple of years ago, we just would have had a financial crisis a couple of years sooner. I mean, that's the point. They didn't raise rates a couple of years ago because they knew that we had a bubble and not a recovery. And they didn't want to prick it. They wanted to keep it growing. There was no point that we could ever raise rates without precipitating a crisis. The problem is by not pricking the bubble sooner, the bubble just got bigger and bigger And now when the air comes out, it's going to be even more painful for everybody living in this in this phony economy. And, you know, speaking about phony economy, even uh, Donald Trump uh, was quoted a day or two ago talking about the artificial nature of the economy. He said, look, you know, this is not real. It's all because of low interest rates and the Fed is keeping interest rates low to make Obama look good, to keep the economy artificially propped up. But interest rates can't stay low forever. The market's going to crash. You know, this is not real prosperity. And all that is true. I mean, this is just right out of, uh, you know, my podcasts. But, you know, when I was I watched the report again on CNBC because they juxtaposed those comments with other comments that Donald Trump made not too long ago in which he said, I'm a low interest rate guy. I like low interest rates. You know, we need to keep interest rates low. I wouldn't want to raise them. So what is it? I mean, if he likes low interest rates, but then he says we have a phony economy based on low interest rates. Does he like phony economies? You know, wouldn't he prefer that we have a real genuine economy? Well, we can't do that unless we have higher interest rates. Now, I know as a real estate guy who borrows a lot of money, yeah, Donald Trump likes cheap financing. It makes his real estate worth a lot more. In fact, the lower interest rates are, the more real estate is worth because real estate is valued based on the present value of its future cash flows. And so you collect rents you know, into the future, but you discount the value of those rents to the present. And the lower the interest rate is, the more that discounted cash flow value is worth. So yeah, as a big debtor and real estate investor, he likes low interest rates. But if you're talking about as an economist or as a presidential candidate or the president, what is good for the economy? What's good for the economy is not low interest rates or high interest rates, but interest rates that reflect the free market, the true savings 
and borrowing needs of the economy, the time preferences of savers and investors. You need a market rate of interest. That's what's best. And what's problematic is if the central bank artificially lowers interest rates to benefit certain segments of the economy, like real estate investors, right, like Donald Trump, at the expense of other segments of the economy. But ultimately, whenever the government comes in and substitutes a price-fixing mechanism for free market discovery, you're collectively going to lower the, the, uh, the standard of living of everybody. Yes, some people will have a higher standard of living relative to others, but overall, the total living standard of the nation as a whole is diminished because of government superimposing its own judgment for the market, because the market is going to lead to the most efficient allocation of resources, and the market is going to discover the right rate of interest. The Federal Reserve is preventing the market from discovering the right rate of interest because it's interfering. And it's not just our Fed that's interfering. The ECB is doing it. The JGB is doing it. Central banks all around the world are practicing monetary socialism. And that is what the problem is. It's not that we have free market capitalism. But Donald Trump, you know, it's hard for him to really criticize the Fed and low interest rates on the one hand. On the other hand, he was just applauding that. Say, yes, I'm a low interest rate guy. I like low interest rates. He needs to be consistent and consistently criticizing the Fed, vilifying the Fed for what it's doing. The problem is, if he's going to acknowledge that he's for higher interest rates, then he has to acknowledge that he's willing to allow the bitter-tasting medicine. He has to acknowledge that, yes, rates have to go up, and we're going to break a bunch of eggs to make this omelet, right? Because when interest rates go up, the stock market's going to come down. The real estate market's going to come down. Banks are going to fail. People are going to lose jobs. People are going to lose money. A lot of stuff is going to happen when we take the punch bowl away. When, I, when everybody sobers up and has to deal with reality, it's a very ugly picture, unfortunately. But as a political candidate, it's very hard for him to say that because he wants to sell optimism. Everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be fantastic. I'm going to make America great again. So he doesn't want to talk about all the necessary things that have to happen to make America great again. Like if you want to get into good shape, right, you, you know, you got to go on a diet, you got to exercise, but he doesn't want to sell that. He wants to sell the, the quick fix. I'm just going to renegotiate the trade deals, uh, you know, and, and that's it. You don't, there's no sacrifice. You don't have to give up anything. We're just going to get all the, the gain without any of the pain. But anyway, after um, we had this speech from Williams in which he fails to acknowledge the weak economic data that we just got, earlier that day, and he's still talking about rate hikes as if we hadn't even gotten this horrible ISM number, you know, that uh, caused a correction in the gold stocks. In fact, the gold stocks, as I'm recording this, gold stocks have lost about half of yesterday's gains, even though gold itself is only down a few bucks. I mean, so gold is maybe given up about 10% of what it gained yesterday, but gold stocks are given up Actually, they're down over 3% as a group, the GDX, as I'm recording this, and they was up, we were up about 4% yesterday. So not only, not only half, I mean, 70, 80% of the gains are being surrendered because the rate hikes that were supposedly on the table, but then officially were taken off the table, now they're supposedly back on. Because again, you know, my, the title of my last uh, uh, podcast 
was it's not bad news until the Fed says it's bad news. I mean, nobody wants to acknowledge or think for themselves because it's not about what is actually happening. It's just about what the Fed's going to do or what the Fed says they're going to do and how the Fed's talk influences the short-term gyrations in the market. So by failing to acknowledge that bad news, all of a sudden now people say, oh, maybe the Fed is going to hike rates in September, or maybe they're going to hike rates in December. And so we're getting this pullback in, in the gold stocks, even though we're really not getting much of a pullback at all in gold. And the same thing in the dollar. I mean, the dollar index got clobbered yesterday. It was down, you know, maybe 1%, and now it's up about little less than uh, one-fifth of that. So the dollar index is back at about 95, uh, and it was down 94.70, 94.80 yesterday. But a small pullback, just a fraction of what, of what it lost. And again, I think the dollar would be down a lot more today, and gold would be adding to yesterday's gains had we got some statement from somebody at the Fed that this was bad news, that you know what? This is not what we expected. We said we were data dependent and we just got some bad data. And therefore, we're not going to raise rates because we just got all this bad data. They don't want to acknowledge the bad data. They don't want to throw that bone uh, uh, to Donald Trump. So even though they claim to be data dependent, even if we get bad data, they don't acknowledge the bad data. They just don't raise rates. And you have to read between the lines. Now, we got another number that came out today that I think also is weighing on the gold stocks, and that was the JOLTS report. And this is the job openings. We get these every month, and we get the July number, and it was much higher than expected. A big jump in job openings. 5.643 million is what we got last month, which was an upward revision. But this month, we got 5.871, which was an even bigger number. And this is the highest it's been in many, many years. And apparently, Janet Yellen you know, is very interested in JOLT because she watches it. She watches the quits rate, which apparently is also up, which is people voluntarily quitting. And in her mind, that shows the labor market is in good shape if people will voluntarily quit because they must be confident that they can get a better job. But there's all these job openings. And supposedly this indicates, well, this is a strong economy because look, there's all these jobs available. And, you know, there's so plenty of jobs there. But the problem is, even though there's all these jobs supposedly out there, companies are not hiring many people. So if they're looking for all these jobs, why aren't they hiring people? I mean, there's certainly a lot of people that aren't working. And so obviously one of the reasons is there's a big mismatch between the type of skills that employers want and the type of skills that applicants actually have. So it's kind of like a wish list. Just because there's a lot of jobs available because employers would love to hire certain types of people. The fact that the people that they love to hire don't exist or they're not willing to work for the type of wages that employers are willing to pay. See, you can have a lot of jobs that you have available where you're willing to pay a certain amount of money, but nobody will take the job at that amount of money. Now, of course, you could offer a higher wage, but maybe the jobs aren't worth the higher wage. So the employers can't offer more money because at that point, they, they'd rather not make the hire. See, part of the problem is that the government has made it very lucrative for people not to work at the low end. So there are a lot of low-paying jobs that are unfilled because a lot of people would prefer just collecting welfare or food stamps or other government programs than taking these low-paying jobs. But if employers have to raise the pay to a high enough level to induce somebody to you know leave the dole and, and actually work, 
then that might be too much for the job. There might not be enough productivity, enough value to support that. So you have all these unfilled, low-paying jobs because employers can't afford to raise their wage because there's not enough value in the jobs, but no one will take the jobs because at that point, they'd rather just collect uh, welfare because you don't have to work. But here's what I think is really going on in the JOLTS numbers that nobody talks about. Nobody talks about this, and that is part-time jobs. You see, the JOLTS survey does not differentiate between the type of job, whether it's a full-time job or a part-time job, whether it's a temporary job or a seasonal job. None of that matters. It's, is the employer looking to hire somebody? Do they, are they advertising for a position? Doesn't matter whether the guy's going to work 40 hours a week or one hour a week. If you're looking to hire somebody to do anything for any amount of time, well, that's a job opening. Well, given the fact that so many companies are looking to hire part-time people now, and I've been going over that on that podcast, and one of the main reasons for that, of course, is the Obamacare law. You have to be under 50 full-time people, and especially if you're in the restaurant business and you own multiple restaurants, they aggregate all that. So if you have four restaurants— and each restaurant has 15 people, well, that's 60. Well, now you got to provide health care. It doesn't matter that one of your restaurants, each one only has 15 workers. If you own four, and a lot of people own multiple restaurants, then they aggregate them. And so there's all this pressure on employers to substitute part-time workers for full-time workers. So by definition, if I've decided as an employer I'm hiring just part-time people. Well, I'm going to have a lot more job openings than when I'm hiring full-time people. If you assume that the part-time worker is going to work half-time, I don't know what it is, but just say the full-time job is 40 hours and a part-time job is 20 hours. Assuming I still have the same amount of work that needs to be done, I still want to pay for the same number of hours, but now I'm just hiring part-time, then I am going to need to hire twice as many people. Every time I have a new position, it's, you know, I need two people, not one person. And so that makes sense. That's why these jolt numbers are so high, because so many people that used to just offer full-time jobs now are only wanting to hire part-time jobs, which necessitate more job openings because I have to hire more people. And I also think that some of these part-time jobs are going to be harder to fill because there are a lot of people that want full-time jobs, right? But not as many people want part-time jobs, especially if they already have one or two part-time jobs and they don't even have any room for another one. Or maybe when you're hiring part-time people, depending on the hours, as you get certain hours filled, there may be other shifts that are less desirable. And it's harder to find somebody who can handle that shift. So it might stand the reason that part-time jobs might go unfilled longer than full-time jobs. And of course, some people that don't have any job at all, they may not want a part-time job because they're giving up your welfare benefits for a part-time job. That might be an even worse deal than giving them up for a full-time job. So all this makes sense that all these part-time jobs are going to be skewing this number. And so why Janet Yellen should just look at this and say, oh, this jolts number, this, this is important to me. But, you know, it is. And because she says it's important to her, well, the markets believe it's important. And so when they see this big jolts number, aha, the Fed is going to raise rates. Well, look, we've had these strong jolts numbers 
month after month, year after year. And how many times has the Fed actually raised rates? Once. That's it. One time by one quarter of a point, and they didn't raise rates during periods of time where the economy was measurably in much better shape than it is now. There were, there, were, there were quarters where GDP growth was much stronger, where the job creation was much stronger, and the Fed was data dependent, and they did nothing. Well, now they're still data dependent, yet the data is much weaker now than it was in the past when they didn't raise rates, and now the, the, rates, the, the data is much weaker. Well, why should they raise rates now if they didn't then? And of course, just longevity, right? The longer this supposed recovery goes on, the closer we are to a recession. So now the fact that we're now seven years into the recovery, as opposed to three or four years into the recovery, we're clearly much closer to the next recession than we were in the past when the Fed chose not to raise rates when the data was much stronger than it than it is today. But also, you know, John Williams, when he talked about why he thinks we need to raise rates and because the economy is strong, he basically said we need to do this because at some point we're going to be back in recession and we need to get those rates higher now so that we can cut them then to stimulate the economy in the next recession. Well, what he doesn't know or what he refuses to admit is that we're already there. We're already in that next recession or we're close to it. And so what's the point of raising rates if we're only going to cut them? I think that the next rate cut that the Fed wants to preserve is changing the forward guidance from are we going to raise rates in September or December to when are we going to cut rates? They still have that one in their pocket, right? That's the arrow in their quiver. By constantly talking about why they're about to raise rates, then they can actually cut rates by just changing that guidance to, well, we're not going to raise rates or we're going to, we're going to reduce rates. They don't actually have to uh, increase rates because I think that's the last thing that this guy wants to do. Because if Williams really believes that the Fed cutting rates stimulates the economy, he's got to be worried about the economy right now, given all this data. If he actually believes that lowering rates are what we need, I think if the Fed had done what Rick Santelli suggested that they should have done, had they actually raised rates a few years ago, based on how bad the data is, they would be cutting rates right now. That's what they'd be doing. And of course, had they raised rates a few years ago, they just would have accelerated the collapse and it would have happened that much sooner. Last thing I want to talk about on today's podcast is what's going on with these uh, for-profit colleges. You know, you got this ITT Educational Services that announced uh, yesterday they're shutting down going out of business, about 35,000 students now that their, you know, their classes are now canceled, and about six, 8,000 8, employees are going to lose their jobs. And the catalyst that precipitated this was the Obama administration said, we're no longer going to let students borrow money to attend this college. And of course, the only reason the college exists is to take advantage of these idiotic government loan programs. Now, of course, the left tries to say, you see, this is an example of capitalism is bad. You know, these guys are out making a profit and they're ripping people off. Look, all the nonprofit schools, or not all of them, but a good chunk of them, they're ripping people off too. You've got lots of people that are going to nonprofits that are getting lousy educations, overpriced educations, that are being sold a bill of goods, that are borrowing a bunch of money, that can't find jobs, and that are doing mundane jobs that they could have done uh, without going to college at all, except now they're doing those jobs five years older, uh, fifty dollars to $100,000 in debt. So this is not about the for-profit college. 
right? And a lot of these nonprofit colleges are very profitable for the people that run them. Look at how much money a lot of people make working at these nonprofit uh, colleges and universities. So it's not about whether it's profit or nonprofit. It's about the government involvement and the government guaranteed student loans. If there were no government guaranteed student loans or no direct government loans, the only way that these colleges would exist is if they could provide a valuable education that was actually worth the tuition, because otherwise people wouldn't buy it. And if they had to borrow money, a lender wouldn't make the loan unless they had some statistical evidence to show that the person borrowing the money would actually acquire the necessary skills to repay the loan. But when you have government guarantees, no one cares. No one cares that the borrower could ever repay the money because the government's going to repay. And in fact, that's exactly what's happening now, because since this company is shutting down, basically, if you're a student, you're one of those 35,000 students. And if you have federal student loans, uh, private ones, that they're different. But if you have a federal government student loan, it's forgiven. You don't have to pay back anything. That's great news. And in fact, even if you graduated, I mean, there, I think it's like 120 days. If you graduated within 120 days, you don't have to pay back your loan either. Now, I don't even know why, because you got your degree. Maybe it's because if the school's not there anymore, they can't help you with some kind of, uh, you know, replacement services program. But you're really out of luck if you graduated over 120 days ago, because now you've got to repay your student loans. But if you're if you're still there, if you're a senior or a junior, uh, and you've accumulated a bunch of debt. You don't have to pay any of it back, at least if it's federal student loans. But, of course, that doesn't mean that the lenders aren't going to get their money back. The taxpayers are now on the hook. And, of course, there's a lot of student loans that are going to blow up on the taxpayer. And we're going to have to we're going to have to pay the tab for these loans. But the problem is not the free enterprise system. It's not capitalism. It's government. It's the fact that the government created uh, this slush fund that everybody wanted a piece of. And, and, and so it's the government that is the problem here. Don't take this as an indictment of capitalism because it's these greedy for-profit uh, schools. It's the government programs that make all this possible. And, you know, the stock on this company, this is a publicly traded company. Stock is now basically worthless. I think I see the last trade at 36 cents, but that was before this most recent news. But you go back and you look at where the stock was a few years ago. This was a hundred dollar stock. This was all, in 2010. This was over a hundred dollars a share. Over a hundred dollars a share. And now it's worthless. Uh, and you know, it shows you again how dangerous it is to get in bed with the government because you know this is what they do to you. You know, you get involved with the government and you think everything is great, then they pull the rug out from under you. Now, of course, the shareholders probably really got the shaft here. There were a lot of people that worked at this company over the years that have probably made huge salaries and they put a lot of money in their pockets. But if you were dumb enough to just buy stock. In the company, I'm not sure what the dividends might have been in the past. You know, I don't know how much you might have collected there in dividends, but certainly whatever your principal that you invested, well, well, that's gone. But the media is going to spin this as if you know it's these greedy for profits. It's not. It's the entire educational system. Certainly, yes, your you know your higher you know your Ivy League schools. Clearly, you know there's there's a lot of value being delivered there in, in those diplomas. And there's a lot of people, uh, you know, even not at Ivy leagues that are getting some value, but even, even some of the best schools still admit people that really shouldn't have been admitted. I mean, I remember when I went to Berkeley, there were a lot of kids that as freshmen were taking remedial math, remedial English. I mean, if you, if you haven't learned English or math by the time you're 18, what's the point of going to college? I mean, if you couldn't master it as a result of junior high school and high school, school, 
Why take another shot at it by, by going to college? They, they never should have been admitted. And a lot of these students, you know, they never graduate anyway, and they run up some debt. And even if they do graduate, I mean, they steer them into these Mickey Mouse majors. They major in, you know, uh, philosophy of sports or Chicano studies or African-American studies or, you know, what kind of job are you going to get, you know, if you major uh, in, in some of this stuff? I mean, you can get a job teaching it, right? If you're an African-American studies major, I guess you can get a job teaching African-American studies. It's almost like a Ponzi scheme in degrees because the only value in the degree is to helping somebody else get that degree. But, you know, there's only so many teaching slots that are available. And so what most people end up doing uh, with these degrees is they end up waiting tables or driving t Ubers, right? So the degrees themselves are worthless. And some of the best colleges are doing this. And they, and they make these, these courses available for people who are in the college anyway because they want to get them into college just so the liberals can, can check that box. Yes, hey, we're getting all these poor, underprivileged kids. We've got them in college, and now they're going to get a degree, and we've done a good job. But they've done a disservice. They've taken somebody who never should have gone to college, and they're putting them in that environment, and now they're loading up with debt they never should have had. Meanwhile, they're robbing these individuals of the opportunity to have done something more productive with their time, to have actually developed a skill that might have led to a real job in the future and a higher income. Instead, you know, they waste their time, they waste money, and now by the time they graduate, they've missed out on the opportunity to have done something more productive with their time. But again, that's what the liberal is. That It's all about form over substance. It's all about making them feel good, right? Liberals want to feel good about themselves because they've supposedly done the right thing with somebody else's money. The actual results actually reflecting on the effect, the actual consequence of their policy, they don't do that. It's just the intention. As long as the intention is good, the consequences don't matter. Well, that's the same thing that's going on with our monetary policy. Hey, they have good intentions. Well, you know what they say about the road to hell? It's paved with good intentions. And you know what? We're running out of road, and it's not too long before we're going to arrive in, uh, in hell. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They are all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold. Today, it's more important than ever to understand the value of gold in your portfolio and to keep a close eye on major market developments. 
Subscribe to my monthly video cast and you'll be the first to hear my latest analysis on gold investing and the currency wars. Visit goldvideocast.com right now to subscribe for free. I call the dot-com bust, then the housing bust, and I advise clients to diversify into foreign equities and hard assets while the rest of Wall Street laughed at me. Now I want to keep you up to date on the next crisis that is brewing. My gold video cast also includes personal interviews I've conducted with other contrarian investors like Jim Rickards and Axel Merck. Gold has gone up 256% since 2003, but it has a lot further to go. Don't miss the rally. You can prosper during this time of currency wars, but only if you stay educated. Get a free subscription to my gold video cast at goldvideocast.com. That's goldvideocast.com.